Good morning, I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leewood campus and uh, special congratulations to our high school seniors and their families. And uh, as I said in the first service, parents were with you. Uh, congratulations and now open up your checkbook and everything else you can figure out, right? That's the way it works. So we're really glad you're here and hope you sense the presence of Christ here. If I were to ask you to do, use one word to describe the cultural moment of our time, what would it be? Now, maybe the word that would come into your mind is fear or anxiety or restlessness. Restlessness is probably the word that I would say. James Jasper, the sociologist, describes in his book, Restless Nation, the one word that best describes our time is restlessness. He describes it as an unsettling discontent at the center of our lives and our communities and our national character. It seems to me that a pervasive restlessness is evident all around us. Clearly in our polarizing and strident social discourse, in the economic pressures and uncertainties, and of course in our recent and ever-present drama-filled political theater. We often feel an unsettling discontent, don't we, in the relationships we have and the work we do. And we seek to crowd out, I think, this kind of unsettling sense of discontent with a host of things, numbing distractions of a hurried life, a busy life, a frazzled life, an overscheduled, overplugged, and overburdened life. I was intrigued by a Huffington Post article recently. Uh, it was entitled, Five Signs You're Restless With Your Life, uh, subtitle, and what to do about it. Now, in case you're feeling rather restless about whether you're restless or not, uh, let me give you the five quickly here. First, number one, you are unhappy at your job. Number two, you don't know what you want to pursue in life. Three, you don't have time for the things that truly matter. Number four, your passion fades quickly. And number five, you're easily overwhelmed. Now, what I find amazing, this article concludes with these words in the Huffington Post. If you're feeling restless, consider it a warning sign from your soul to take action. Hmm. See, when we slow down long enough to take a deep breath, isn't it true that we hear our weary souls longing for something more? For another kind of life, one not marked by soul-aching restlessness, but a life of soul-satisfying restfulness. But how do we live a restful life in a restless age? How do we do it? Jesus answers this question, and it may be surprising to you. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you've been here a while, you know that as a church family, we've been exploring this rich book called the Gospel of Matthew together. Matthew features Jesus' teaching uh, on who is the truly good person and what the truly good life is. As we come to this section, the question remains for all of us is where is this truly good life found? Now, in our text this morning, Jesus will answer this very question, not only with an astonishing answer, but with an awesome invitation. And Jesus invites us to experience the truly good life found in his yoke. 
Now, as we look closer at His great invitation, I'd like this morning for us to consider three important questions. So the terrain of our thought will follow this. First, who invites us? Secondly, what are we invited to? And third, how will we respond? So who invites us? What are we invited to? And how will we respond? Who invites us as an invitation is foundational. All of us get many invitations, don't we? And this time of year, we get graduation invitations, right? And the mail, we get wedding invitations. We also get invitations from friends, for example, who text us to go to the Royals game or go to a party. We have all kinds of invitations. We may get it from our boss and an email to invite us to join them on a business trip. But see, an invitation is only as good as the person giving it to us. That's what makes the invitation really grab us and really important. So it's not surprising when Jesus gives us an invitation, he reminds us of who he is that gives it in verses 25 to 27. Matthew highlights the one who gives this invitation to the truly good life. And more in any place in his gospel up to this point, he zeroes in on a clear focus. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. I want to read that again. Let's focus here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, I want you to notice the literary structure and how this is placed together. It's important to understand this text. Verses 25 through 27 might be considered a preamble to the invitation that follows in verses 28 through 30. So you have preamble, invitation. Got that? Now, within the preamble, there are two aspects. First, there is a short prayer. It's one of the most stunning prayers in the New Testament. It's a prayer of Jesus here, and it shows the intimacy with the Father in verses 25 to 26. And then right after that is this bold assertion that Jesus gives about himself in verse 27. There are a few places in the New Testament that give a more clear glimpse of the divinity of Jesus than right here. And here we have one of the first literary crescendos of the book of Matthew that reveals and praises the identity of Jesus. So who is this Jesus that invited Matthew, the writer, who was a marginalized figure in the, New, in, the, in the New Testament world. He was a tax collector. Who is this person that invited Matthew, of all people, to follow him? And how is it that Matthew's life was so radically changed? This has to undergird our thinking as we enter this text. Now notice, in the preamble of the invitation, Jesus says, first of all, he is the one who is intimate with the Father. Notice in verse 25, and beginning each verse, five verses, he will repeat the word Father five times. Emphasis here is that Jesus is not only intimate with the triune God as a member of the Trinity, he is one with the Father. He is the only true Son of God. Now, secondly, also, notice as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, that the offices of prophet, priest, and king are also explicitly stated by Jesus in his messianic claim. Notice verse 26. Jesus is the prophet of prophets. He is, quote, the one who re reveals the will of God. That's what a prophet does. Verse 27, Jesus asserts he is the king of kings. 
He is the one who has authority over all things. So he is prophet, king, and priest. Look at verse 27. He asserts he is the priest of all priests, the prophet of all prophets, the king of all kings, the priest of all priests. He is the one who mediates between God and humanity, between you and me. Notice the text. He is the one who knows the Father and makes the Father known to us. That's what a priest does. So he's king, prophet, and priest. Jesus' bold exclamation point of the fullness of his deity sets the backdrop of this grand invitation. We must not miss it. In other words, we need to pause here, as Matthew wants us. If Jesus is who he claims to be, this changes everything. And it raises the importance of the amazing invitation Jesus gives to you and me, God himself, God incarnate, God in the flesh. So who Jesus really is really matters. Not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. And here's what Matthew wants us to grasp. You ready? That Jesus is not only the fork in the road of all human history, he claims to be the one path to the truly good life we long to live. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, that's a big claim, and I believe the most challenging reaction to that, the greatest barrier for us to place our trust in Jesus is not an intellectual one. It is rather a pride barrier. It's not the plausibility of belief that's the greatest challenge in our life or the intellectual differences. It is the pride of our heart that is most perilous. In other words, it's not our questions or our doubts, many of us have those, that concern Jesus most. It is our pride that concerns Jesus most. In his classic 20th century work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis hits it out of the park, as he often does. He calls human pride the great sin. In fact, he has a whole chapter in that book on that. And this is what he says. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, think about this, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites. I like that. In comparison, it was though, or through pride that the devil became the devil. And then he goes on to say, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So when it comes to realizing who Jesus really is, can I ask you this morning where your heart really is? Where is your heart this morning? What do you think of Jesus? How do you see him? Perhaps you are struggling with that, who Jesus is. You may be checking out the Christian faith. You're not sure who this Jesus really is. And I simply would ask you to keep an open mind and an open heart about him. Jesus makes extraordinary claims. But will you simply say to him this morning, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, please show me. See, the greatest obstacle to experience the life we long to live, the life we were created to live, the good life Jesus has been talking about in the Gospel of Matthew is not the busyness of our lives. That is a challenge, right, for all of us. It's not even the unfulfilled longings of our heart or the disappointments of our lives. The greatest challenge for you and me to experience the good life God has for us is the pridefulness of our hearts. And notice in verse 25, Jesus is not making some anti-intellectual statement. He compares children and the adults. And he makes the comparison that 
The humility of a child is how you are to see Jesus, not just the arrogance of prideful wisdom. So he's saying that we come to him in humility and we see him for who he really is. One of my favorite writers, he's now uh, deceased and uh, is a wonderful British theologian, John Stott. He put it this way. I think he said it better than anybody else. He said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility your greatest friend. No matter where we are in our spiritual journey, friends, nothing blinds our eyes more to who Jesus really is and the good life he offers than a prideful human heart. That's the greatest barrier. And so you may be thinking, how do I know if pride is blinding my eyes to who Jesus is and the life he has for me? See, pride basically convinces us in different dimensions, different ways, we don't really need to surrender to God in all areas of our life. It is what Ernest Hensley said in his famous poem, Invictus, that we are the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. Pride is the greatest danger for you to flourish as Jesus longs for you to flourish and to see him and to experience his love for you. Jesus desires for you to flourish. He invites you to flourish. So what does Jesus invite you to? How does this work? Now notice in verses 28 through 30, Jesus invites you and me to experience the truly good life. That's what he's been talking about for 10 chapters, now 11. And the truly good life is a life of both intimacy and apprenticeship with him. Get that in your mind. Intimacy with him and apprenticeship with him. Look at me in verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, Jesus says, is easy and my burden is light. In this great invitation, Jesus invites you and me to a life of growing intimacy with him. He doesn't say, do a bunch of religious things or gain a certain amount of religious information or jump through a bunch of religious hoops. Jesus says, no, he says, Come to me and get to know me. And he makes very explicit his invitation to experience intimacy with him is open to all. Do you see that? No matter what you have done in the past, what you're facing in the present, what you're struggling with in your life when you walked in here, Jesus' nail-scarred arms are open to invite you to him. Jesus knows exactly where you are this morning. And he has an apt description for every restless human heart as weighted down and heavy laden. Jesus is specifically speaking in his first century context to religious people who are yoked with this impressive religiosity and legalism and rules. But restlessness and weighted down is not just a function of the religious, it's also a function of the irreligious. Weariness and heaviness and restlessness are timeless descriptions of both the religious and irreligious human condition. So Jesus is describing here with this language, it may seem a little bit difficult to grasp, the haunting emptiness and unshakable restlessness of living a life without God at the center of human existence. Jesus' invitation to intimacy with him promises rest. You will notice twice Jesus repeats this word. It's a very central idea. In English, when we hear rest, what do we think of? You know, maybe the good night's sleep we didn't get last night. I don't know. 
We may be thinking of chilling out, right? A life of comfort, a life of ease. But Jesus has much more in mind than that. What does he mean? Rabbi Jesus is pointing back to creation, to the original creation in Genesis 2. First time the word rest emerges. It captures God after his six days of creation resting, delighting. See, it wasn't that God was tired after he created the universe. God is stepping back and delighting in his Trinitarian relationship and the goodness of his creation masterpiece. And we've had a little bit of that, haven't we? You ever had that experience of delight, looking at your work? We often step back, don't we? You finish a test in school that you know you've nailed. And you go, ah, yeah, I got it. Sense of delight. Maybe at work you have a project. You've been working a long time. You get it done. It looks good. You go, yes. You have joy in your accomplishment. Or if you're a yard jock, you've mowed that yard, you know, especially in the spring. Everything is in perfect order. You step back. It's all manicured. You go, yes. That's the picture. There's a joyful rush of delight. This word connotes this kind of delight. It's a comprehensive picture of the truly good life God originally created you to experience. It's a life of joy and delight and accomplishment. It's a life of intimacy with God and with others in his created world. So the rest looks back to the Garden of Eden in original creation. It looks forward to the cross of Calvary. It looks even more forward to the new heavens and new earth. It is one of the central threads of the whole Bible that connects it in coherence. It looks to the cross where, innocent blood, where Jesus shed his innocent blood so that sinful people like you and me and a broken creation groaning under the weight of its corruption can be made new and whole again one day. And on the cross, Jesus made possible for us and his broken world to once again experience true rest. Looks to the longing of life as it ought to be and what one day will be in the new heavens and earth. C.S. Lewis described the longings of our heart, longing for that future reality that we will live fully as God created us to live in the new heavens and earth, and he described it this way, as only Lewis could do. The scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. See, our restless hearts long for that reality that only Jesus can provide, and in this time between Jesus' first and second coming, in the already not yet moment of God's redemptive history, this longing longs deeply within us. And it longs for that day, one yet future, when we will live and be fully as we ought to be. But Jesus promises rest not just in the future, he promises it now. Only Jesus can provide this kind of life. As a young man, his restless heart was passionate. He pursued all that life offered as a young man, he enjoyed the most amazing privileges of wealth, the finest education of his time. He tasted a very promiscuous lifestyle, all the pleasures imaginable, yet his restless heart only increased in intensity. And at the height of his soul's turmoil, he heard a voice, as he describes it, like that of a child chanting, take and read, take and read. And he picks up the New Testament and he encounters the person of Jesus. 
It was the summer of 386. A young man given the name Augustine at birth became a follower of Jesus. Augustine, who is known throughout history as St. Augustine, wrote perhaps the greatest spiritual autobiography of all time called The Confessions of St. Augustine. And if you're a graduating senior, to me that's a must-read before you go to college if you haven't read it now. Augustine begins this extraordinary work with these words. This is how he begins his masterpiece work. You are great, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and to your wisdom there is no limit. And man who is part of your creation wishes to praise you, man who bears about with himself his mortality, who bears about within himself testimony to his sin and testimony that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation wishes to praise you. You arouse him to take joy in praising you, for you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. St. Augustine found rest for his restless heart. And my question to you this morning is, how about you? How about you? How do we experience this restful life? How do we do it? Is this a setup? Or is this profoundly true and transformational in our life? Notice with me verse 29. Jesus not only invites us to intimacy, intimacy with him, but apprenticeship with him. Now, I want you to notice, as thoughtful listeners, Jesus' invitation, Jesus was a brilliant rabbi. His invitation to apprenticeship, or we may say discipleship, or learning here in Matthew 11, follows a rabbinical pattern he has already established in chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jesus invites all who would be his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And what Jesus does is he embeds his invitation to discipleship in a metaphor and a paradox. In a metaphor and a paradox. What do I mean by this pattern of invitation, metaphor, and paradox? In chapter 10, Jesus uses the cross here as a metaphor for death. Death to self. But in this metaphor, there lies an embedded, stunning paradox. What is a paradox? A paradox is something that at first glance appears to be impossible, but is actually true. The cross, as a symbol of death, becomes the doorway to life. This is paradox. And Jesus invites all who be his disciples, and he makes the point that we pick up our cross and we follow Jesus, and we find true life when we do this. Chapter 10. Now chapter 11, hear the echoing of Jesus' teaching. Here in chapter 11, Jesus follows the same pattern of invitation, metaphor, and paradox. Jesus says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Like the cross, the yoke was a metaphor, but of anything but human flourishing. Throughout the entire Bible, the word yoke is used every other time in an oppressive way. It's a picture of human enslavement. It's a picture of languishing. It's a picture of despair. And Jesus takes it and turns it upside down and puts it in a positive way. It is the path to human flourishing. Wow. Jesus' first century listeners were familiar with the yoke. Since we're not in an agrarian world, it's often not very common to us. 
Let's reflect on a moment what the yoke is, what Jesus meant. Now, here's a yoke. You see it around Christ's community. Hopefully, a lot of you have been here a while. Think of it as a McDonald's golden arches turned upside down. So anytime you see McDonald's golden arches, I want you to ask if you're yoked with Jesus. Promise me? <laughs> but remember, Jesus is a carpenter. The vast majority of his time on earth was in a carpentry shop building things. He is a rabbi. He brings these two realities together. Rabbis often in the first century describe their teaching school or their students as being in the yoke with them. Jesus brings this together. Now, notice this yoke is a training yoke. Jesus says, take my yoke, word, learn from me. There are many different yokes, different kinds of yokes. This is a training yoke. Remember, oxen were the first century equivalent of a tractor. That's the idea for farming. So when a farmer needed a new ox to be trained, because ox, oxen, ox, oxen, oxen wore off, you know, they got old. They needed a new, one to, a new ox. So when they wanted to train a new ox how to plow, how to do ox things, they went into the village. The farmer went to see the carpenter. That's what Jesus and his guardian father did. Many other things too, and building things, but they made yokes. So the farmer says, I got a new ox. I got my old ox. I need a special yoke. And every yoke is custom made. So once the village carpenter gets instructions for the farmer, he goes out to the farm, measures the old ox, it's mature, measures the young ox, and then goes back and makes a perfect yoke for the, that team. One day when he has the yoke done, he brings it out to the farmer, and that day the young ox's life will change forever. Because the young ox is then strapped in one side of the yoke, the old mature ox on this side of the yoke, and now it's time to train the young ox what it means to be an ox. That's the idea. On that day, the young ox's life will change forever. He will say goodbye to an old way of life, to a new life he could never imagine without it. This is the picture Jesus is painting. It is in the yoke with Jesus, like a young ox, where an apprentice is being informed, formed, and transformed by the master. When the young ox is apprenticed to the mature ox, over time, the young ox becomes just like the mature ox, eyeball to eyeball. The yoke is a picture of intimacy and apprenticeship. This is what Jesus has in mind. See, we think of the Christian faith, we often think of a cross, don't we? And that is a good thing and a very important thing. Why is it we so seldom think of a yoke when this is so foundational to Jesus' teaching? What happened to the yoke? See, we come to Jesus for different reasons in our lives, don't we? We realize our sin, our brokenness, our need. We want Jesus to fix us. But his yoke reminds us that he first wants to train us to be like him, to train us. And if we look forward in the biblical story, we are training now to reign with him forever, training for reigning. See, discipleship properly understood, do not miss this. Are you with me? Do not miss this. Discipleship properly understood is not a class we attend but it is a person we increasingly know, cherish, and learn from. In the yoke of apprenticeship to Jesus, we increasingly think as Jesus thinks. We increasingly see the world as Jesus sees it, and we increasingly love what Jesus loves. 
When we enter Jesus' yoke and become his apprentice, we say goodbye to an old restless way of life in order to experience a new way of restful life in Jesus. In the yoke, we encounter the with God life. In his yoke, Jesus is always with us. He is always there for us in the darkest hours, in the highest va- our deepest valleys, and the highest mountains. He will never leave us. That's the last words he, that's recorded he said before he ascended to heaven. The abiding presence of Jesus and the empowering of the Holy Spirit are constant companions to the yoked apprentice. And in the yoke, we learn not only his precepts, what he teaches in Scripture, we learn his practices. We learn the rhythm of Jesus. For example, we slow life down. We pick up God's word before we jump on our computers, for example, or our cell phone. We increasingly learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. See, in Jesus' yoke, we are all in and all his. That's what the yoke requires. And that's where the truly good life is found. The life of rest. So how will we respond this morning? Jesus gives us an amazing invitation. The God of the universe to invite us to a whole new life that we could never imagine we could live now. And we will live fully one day in the new heavens of earth. That's what our hearts long for most. So how will we respond? See, the cross of Christ makes possible the yoke of Christ. The cross is here, and the yoke is right behind it. The good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus paid it all for you and me. That in his saving grace, We can enter the yoke of grace and learn from our crucified and risen Lord how to live the restful life we were created to live not only now but forever. So let me ask three questions. You might want to write these down. First, are you living a rested or restless life? Let's be honest this morning. What is your heart telling you? What are your desires telling you? Is there an unsettled discontent or is there a growing peace and contentment in your life? What are your relationships with others telling you? Your children, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues at work, classmates at school. What is your schedule of your life telling you? What is your work telling you? Eugene Peterson absolutely brilliantly paraphrases this text. Listen to his words. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Wow, that's the life I long for. It's the life Jesus makes possible for us to live. Secondly, have you entered Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship? Becoming a yoked apprentice of Jesus is both a decisive decision in your life as well as a daily commitment to follow him. Just like the young ox who goes into that training mode with a mature ox, there is a moment in time when we say to God, we are all in to Christ. We are yoked with you. I'm yoked with you. I'm going to follow you. And when you enter Jesus' yoke of apprenticeship and follow him, 
and be with him, you grow in intimacy with Jesus and you experience the fragrant fruit of the Spirit and you learn from Jesus what the truly good life is, even when life is hard. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've not yet responded to Jesus' great invitation. Can I encourage you to do so this morning right where you're sitting? Jesus invites you. He invites me. The God of the universe who died for you, who shed his blood on the cross, makes it possible for you to have that kind of intimate relationship with him and he invites you, come to me. Take my yoke and learn from me. Third, how are you learning from Jesus? See, we not only get yoked, we need to stay yoked. Jesus is the most brilliant life coach you will ever find. He is the most brilliant person in your field of study and interest and work. Jesus is the most brilliant being in the universe about neuroscience, philosophy, history, art, religion, business, economics, you name it. The Apostle Paul understood this brilliantly. Writing to the Colossians, he said this. Listen to what he says about Jesus. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow. That's the one who invites you to learn from him. That's the greatest privilege ever imaginable. It's transformational. He's the greatest intellect, the greatest heart. Are we looking to him? See, when we become apprentices of Jesus, Jesus speaks into every nook and cranny of our life. There's no Sunday to Monday gap. The yoke takes us from Sunday to Monday seamlessly in living it out in all dimensions of life. We learn how to love our spouse if we're married, right? We learn how to love our children, to serve. We need to learn how to do our work at the office or wherever it is, or our school. And a part of that is that Jesus powerfully changes friendships, marriages, and our work when we're yoked to him. When we become apprentices of Jesus, we seek to follow Jesus as a way of life. And one of the things that are distinct about Jesus that we need to embrace is he practiced spiritual disciplines. Disciplines like solitude, fasting, prayer, study, and humble service to others. Spiritual disciplines have often been called throughout the history of the church spiritual exercises because they are like a physical exercise that keeps us healthy physically. And we engage in spiritual exercises to nurture spiritual health and growth. These spiritual disciplines are exercised, hear me carefully, never earn God's favor or merit. They are not a path to salvation, but they do play a very important part of us becoming more like Jesus and experiencing the good life that he died for. Do not separate them far. The cross and the yoke are meant to be right together. Spiritual disciplines are a vital part of following Jesus and learning from him. There are many good books on that I could recommend to you. And uh, Dallas Willard wrote a wonderful book on it. Richard Foster has. We wrote a book earlier called The Five Smooth Stones, but there are ways you can learn more about learning these rhythms of grace. I highly commend that to you. We embrace his precepts and we seek to emulate his life and the rhythms of wholeness that Jesus models. That's part of being yoked to Jesus. So how do we live a restful life in a restless age? 
How do we do it? Is it possible? Jesus promises it is. And he just says, get yoked to me. Get yoked to me. And you'll find life. You'll find rest. See, only Jesus can transform the restless human heart. Only Jesus can bring true rest to your soul. How will you respond to his invitation? It's the most glorious invitation ever given. And he gives it to you and to me this morning. This morning as we come to the Jesus communion table, may our hearts be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. In his great invitation, Jesus invites us to come to him and to learn from him. It is around this table that we give thanks for his great sacrifice on the cross that made possible his great invitation both to intimacy and apprenticeship in his yoke. So as we prepare our hearts to take the bread and dip it in the cup, may we first have a moment of self-examination this morning. Have we entered the yoke of apprenticeship with Jesus and are we learning to live our lives like he would if he were us? I'd like us to bow our heads and hearts as we have a moment of silence. I don't want you thinking about what you're going to do after church this morning (laughs) or thinking about someone next to you or an issue you have, but to quiet your heart before God. And I want you to ask two questions. Have I embraced the cross? Am I a true Christian? Have I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior? And have I followed him in apprenticeship? Have I said yes to his yoke? Where am I at this morning? Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'll give you the life you long to live. The life you were created to live. But take my yoke. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus welcomes all who have placed their trust in him to come to his table of grace, his table of rest, Find a communion station near you. They're around the room. Gather in groups and partake. Jesus has come to me. Please come.